You're listening to the Podcast Network. Find more great podcasts at www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Welcome, everybody, to episode 23 of the Napoleon 101 podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. With me, as always, my esteemed co-host, Jay David Markham. How are you, sir? I'm very good, Cameron. How about you? Very good. Very excited to be doing this episode, even though we're going to be talking about the lead-up to the Russian campaign of 1812, which is a horrific episode, not just in terms of Napoleonic history, but of course in terms of human history, uh, European history, absolutely devastating uh, event occurred. But uh, as you know, we've been planning this for a couple of weeks and we've had a few technical challenges, so I'm glad that we're here, we're into it, my books are open, I have markers everywhere, and I know this is one of the uh, periods of Napoleonic history that you are particularly well-versed in, and I'm really looking forward to listening to you take us yet again on this journey. So where, where did it all start, David? Where did, where did the road to Moscow begin, do you think? Well, 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 well first of all, thank you. Thank you for those, those kind of comments. I don't know that I'm wildly well-versed, but I have written a, a few articles on it, and I've had... I must say the the great honor and pleasure to to twice have been invited uh, to to give a, a lecture to present a paper at the uh, Borodino uh, conference, which they have every uh, couple of years or so. In fact, I was the, the first American ever scholar ever invited to uh, to to give a paper back in, in 1999, and 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 the good people at Borodino. Uh, uh, really, both times treated my wife Barbara and I extraordinarily well, and 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 I want to start off by saying that that if you have a chance to go to Russia, uh, you go to Moscow, and it's a, an hour and a half or two hour drive from Moscow. At least it was when when I was there last on some sort of rough roads. Uh, the roads may have gotten better. Uh, it's well worth the trip. The, the, the battlefield is, is one of the finest uh, in the world as far as the state of preservation and the monuments and so on. And when we get to the Battle of Borodino, I may very well end up saying all of this all over again. Uh, but, it's, but it's worth saying all over because it's really a, a fabulous place. It's one of those places you need to go. As far as where it all begins, uh, I suppose you almost have to go back to Tilsit back in 1807. Uh, after the battles of Eylau and Friedland, where Napoleon had defeated the Russians uh, fairly decisively, uh, really at uh, at the Battle of Friedland in 1807, and and you may recall, uh, dear listeners, that, that we we talked about the the meeting uh, on the raft uh, in the river at Tilsit between Tsar Alexander. Uh, and, and Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, and and and, and the two the two men really rather hit it off well, as as you'll recall, and 
and and signed an alliance and and and, and seemingly at the time at least e even more importantly became pretty good friends at least they seemed to be pretty good friends and of course this at least theoretically set up Napoleonic France as 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 in, in a spectacular fashion you've got this enormous country of Russia that that looms uh, on on central and east and, and western Europe from the east you've got uh, Napoleonic France and its allies uh, in the west it's it's really uh, uh, a pretty impressive uh, uh, arrangement uh, for for everything uh, but but as we saw I, I guess it must have been in the last episode when we talked about uh, 1809 and the Battle of Wagram uh, that campaign uh, Napoleon's ally Russia uh, really sort of sat on the sidelines and it was rather disappointing. I mean, you know, Napoleon always figured that, that Austria would be kept under control because they've got France on one side and Russia on the other side and, 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 and that really ought to, ought, ought to keep things uh, uh, fine, but, but it didn't in 1809 and, and while Russia didn't betray Napoleon and they you know they did a little bit they moved a few troops here and there they they they, they really didn't contribute very much to Napoleon's victory and Napoleon was was disappointed there's no question about it but it's also clear that, that Napoleon was prepared to sort of let that slide it didn't really have much of an impact on things and he didn't want to do anything to upset the the relationship uh, that that he had. Uh, but that relationship was tenuous at best. And, and the reason it was tenuous is, is, is right back to the Treaty of Tilsit. There were, there were two major problems in 1807 with the Treaty of Tilsit that, that everybody sort of glossed over at first, but eventually come back to to haunt both Tsar Alexander and Napoleon. The first, the first thing is 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 Poland, and and and, and it's, it's interesting. We're talking about Poland once again, uh, and I'm I'm going to Poland in in, in about ten days for a, a conference there, and 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 once again, as be my my second trip, I'll, I'll get a chance to see where a lot of these things took place. Napoleon had a very, very good relationship with the Poles. And out of the Treaty of Tilsit was created uh, the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, which wasn't exactly the, the major country, a new and liberated Poland that the Poles had wanted. But it was a huge step in that direction. And it was really the, the first... A significant step toward creating an independent Poland uh, during this uh, a period of time, and so the Poles were absolutely elated, and and the Poles ever since that time really uh, were big supporters of Napoleon, very very loyal allies, and Napoleon it, it must be said was was always really very good to the Poles as well, even if he didn't give them absolutely everything uh, that they wanted. 
Well, that was all well and good for Napoleonic France and for the emperor, and it was all well and good certainly for the Poles, but it wasn't so well and good for Tsar Alexander. You know, we, we have to remember that Tsar Alexander, you know, obviously he was, he was a Tsar. He was a, a, a ruler with an enormous amount of power. Uh, but he was not able to do things without at least making some effort to gain the support of his nobles, of his business class, his merchants, his commercial class, and his family. And he had to worry about the family uh, because you never were quite sure who in the family was completely loyal to you and, and who might be interested in taking your place. Uh, let's not forget that his father, Tsar Paul, who had been you know, on very good terms with Napoleon, met an untimely death, and there were people who believed that Tsar Alexander had perhaps literally a hand in that. So, you know, Alexander, while he wants to promote this friendship with Napoleon and, and, and so on, he, he, he still has to be careful. Uh, people oftentimes talk about Napoleon being an expansionist, and, and they point legitimately to the fact that during the Napoleonic period, uh, the borders of France, literally, and, 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 and also in terms of, of, of countries that came under their domination or were allied to them, uh, the, the influence of France continually expanded, particularly to uh, the, the east. But the Russians were also interested in expanding their borders as well. And, of course, where they particularly wanted to expand was where the Grand Duchy of Warsaw was. They had a historic interest in that territory, had parts of it from time to time, and they wanted to do it again. And with Napoleon creating the Grand Duchy of Warsaw and stationing soldiers, French soldiers, uh, right there, right on their border, this made it difficult for what the Russians considered their natural uh, area of expansion. You know, Poland was a little bit like the uh, uh, the left bank of the Rhine or whatever. I mean, it was you know, the natural borders of France. Well, well, Poland can uh, Russia considered a lot of Poland to be part of the natural borders of Russia, uh, and so. They're, uh, you know, they're prevented from this expansion, and there's French soldiers right there. Uh, worse yet, from the standpoint of the nobles, was the fact that when Napoleon establishes the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, he, he, he institutes all of the kinds of reforms, all of the, the liberal changes. Uh, that he had brought to France and brought to other parts of Europe, he brings them to the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. He gets rid of the old feudal system. He gets rid of serfdom. Of course, the Russia had serfdom and didn't want to see that uh, abolished. Uh, he brings a, a variety of the uh, Code Napoleon uh, there, social reforms. Uh, he, As he did everywhere he went, he promoted religious tolerance, religious freedom, and most of all, uh, freedom for the Jews. 
uh, as they had been the case in Italy, in France, and elsewhere, Polish Jews were restricted in their movements and the kind of jobs they could have. They were restricted to where they could live. There was the, the infamous uh, Warsaw Ghetto uh, uh, of Jews, and, and Napoleon tore down the walls of the ghetto, removed the restrictions uh, of, of the Jews to, to, uh, to practice their religion, to live where they wanted to, and so on. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the Russians, particularly the Russian nobility, were not very pleased with this. Again, I just, I just gave a, a paper and some discussion at a conference in Israel a few weeks ago, and, and, and we talked about this a great deal. And, you know, when you think about the things that Napoleon did that were positive, one of the most positive was his approach to religious freedom, religious liberty, and especially toward uh, the Jews. It wasn't perfect. We might even want to do a segment on that sometime, Napoleon and religious freedom, Napoleon and the Jews. Uh, I think that would be very interesting. Uh, and and so, so I'll say what my ammunition for then. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, here in the, in the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, Napoleon uh, is, does very well uh, by the Jews, by the serfs, by, by the middle class, the business interests. Just about everybody, except, of course, the Russian nobility. Uh, the Russians did not like the freeing of the serfs. They did not like the freeing of, 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 Jewish, of the Jews, of improvement in Jewish liberty. The Russian Orthodox Church was not really known for its uh, a great uh, attitude toward Judaism and the relationship between the church and the state in Russia was rather cozy, uh, to say the least. Uh, and so Alexander came under a lot of pressure. You know, these, these people came to him, the church leaders, the business interests, the various members of the family, the nobles, said, Alexander, you know, sire, your highness, whatever they call him, what's going on here? You know, we, we thought it was a pretty good deal when you made peace with Napoleon, and we're glad you've got this buddy-buddy relationship, but, you know, we're not getting very much out of this so far. The Jews are getting a lot out of it, the Poles are getting a lot out of it, the serfs are getting a lot out of it, but we're not. And, and, and we're really, you know, not, not sure, you know, what, what to say about that. Well, Alexander passed the word on to Napoleon, but Napoleon's having nothing to do with any idea of, of deserting his Polish friends. He has no interest in Russian expansionism. In fact, he rather likes having a buffer uh, between uh, the Confederation of the Rhine and obviously Austria and, 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 and France itself uh, in the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. He, he thinks that's just fine. He's very pleased to, 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 to be seen by many people in Europe as this, this great liberator and great promoter of reforms. And he rather likes the opportunity to have an army sitting uh, on Russia's border, sort of as a friendly gesture uh, or friendly warning uh, that, that you know, don't, don't get any ideas. Uh, and, and this, this conflict over Poland is 
probably the central reason for the ultimate conflict between Russia and France, between Tsar Alexander and Emperor Napoleon. And, and, and I have to say that on this issue, at least, Napoleon has the moral high ground. I think it's very hard to argue uh, that Napoleon, this terrible warmonger, should have been willing to sacrifice the at least portions, as, as Alexander suggested, of the Grand Duchy of Warsaw uh, to, to move them back to the, the, the medieval approach taken by uh, the Russians towards serfs, toward Jews, etc., uh, in, in the interest of, of, of keeping Tsar Alexander happy. Uh, even people who aren't big fans of Napoleon, I, I think, would have to, on this issue, cede that Napoleon has seized the moral high ground. And, and, and then there's the question of the continental system. Now, 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 Cameron, you and I have talked about the continental system before. As a refresher, that's, that's the, the uh, economic blockade of Great Britain. It was an effort to defeat Britain through economics since it had been impossible to defeat them militarily. And it was a, an effort that I suppose most would think, including me, was probably doomed to failure, although I also believe that if you, if you look at some of the numbers that, that, that there had been at least some success. But the idea of keeping all of Europe, including this e enormous country of Russia, I mean, listeners, look, look at a map. This is one problem with doing a podcast as opposed to a video cast. We, we can't show you right this minute a map, but all of you have a map of Europe. You know, look at how big Russia is compared to, to, to all of the rest of Europe and so on. And imagine how difficult it would be for anyone to secure those borders and to keep trade uh, from, from, from taking place on the black market. But, of course, Alexander had problems again with the nobles, again with the merchant class, again with his family, uh, all of whom liked good trade relations with Great Britain, made great deals of money with great trade with Great Britain, and really were not very interested in, in helping Napoleon defeat Great Britain economically. Now, they didn't have a great love of Britain. If Napoleon had managed to defeat Britain and, and force it to have peace, well, that was probably fine with them because a, a Great Britain that was forced to have peace with, with, with France would still be trading and probably at that point even more so trading with Europe and trading uh, with Russia. Uh, but to participate in a blockade was simply uh, more than all of those, that those three groups of people, family, nobility, and, and merchant class, uh, could take. Uh, it, was, it was hurting Russia in a lot of ways, and, 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 and Russia had already begun to, to take steps to, to sort of get around this. One of the steps that was taken 
and others had tried this, but the Russians were quite good at it, was to trade with neutral ships, okay? which would include, for example, American ships. The United States of America was, was theoretically a, a neutral country. So it, it turns out in 1812, they're actually fighting Great Britain, the War of 1812, and Great Britain's you know, burning down the White House. But, but uh, uh, prior to 1812, the United States is considered neutral. So a ship that's flying an American flag coming into a port uh, uh, with British goods that it's picked up is theoretically uh, a neutral ship. And although the continental system really didn't allow the uh, such trade because it was a sham, many of these were British ships simply flying an American flag, which must have galled a few of the uh, sailors. But, but uh, you know, nevertheless, I mean, it was a sham. Everybody understood it was a sham. Uh, uh, the Russians start to put tariffs on, on French merchants uh, to try to reduce the amount of trade with France. I've never quite understood why they uh, did that. Uh, and some Russian military units are, are moved up close to the border uh, with the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. Now, it's kind of hard to say what that was all about because the French army in the Grand Duchy was commanded by none other than Marshal Davout, who is, you know, certainly one of the best of all of Napoleon's marshals. And you didn't really want to, 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 to go up against Davout if you could, have, if, if you could avoid it. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that was more bluster, I think, than anything else. Uh, anyway, so we get up toward 1812, we've got all of these factors that are really putting pressure on Tsar Alexander. But Tsar Alexander, to, to give him his due, is trying to resist at least some of those things, and he's trying to find a way to work something out with Napoleon, at least initially. You know, he, he, he goes to Napoleon and he says, listen, you know, I'll... I'll redouble my efforts. Of course, doubling not much is still not getting much, but, but I'll, I'll try harder with the continental system. Okay? Uh, but you've got to let me do a couple of things. You've got to make me happy, make, make, make me in better shape with my, my nobles and my family and my merchants. You, you've got to turn the other way, look the other direction when it comes to the, the trading with, with, with neutral ships. Yeah, we all know that that may be a little suspicious sometimes, but, you know, we've got to, we've, you've got to let me do that. And you also need to give me at least a little piece, or maybe a big piece, of the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. You've got to give me something that I can take back to my people and say, listen, Napoleon understands, and Napoleon's willing uh, to, to help us out. Well, Napoleon is not interested at all in that. He knows full well that if he allows Russia free trade with the so-called neutral ships, that the continental system is doomed. So while it may sound like Tsar Alexander is trying to be reasonable, it's really not very reasonable at all. Assuming that you believe that the continental system can still be made to work. And 
while it may sound not that terrible, oh, give me a chunk of the Grand Duchy, it would have betrayed the Poles, those people who had been given their freedom, uh, given new opportunities, given the reforms I mentioned earlier, who were not only going to find themselves as part of Russia, would lose all that they had gained. And there was no reason to believe that that would satisfy the Russians. There was no reason to believe that they would not expect uh, more down the line. And Napoleon understood that. And I honestly think Tsar Alexander uh, understood that as well. Both sides wanted peace. I really don't think Alexander wanted to go to war with France. I mean, look at a map of Europe in 1812. Alexander is up against a behemoth. You've got Napoleonic France, and between the countries that, that, that Napoleon controls directly, and the countries like Austria and Prussia with whom they are allied, you have pretty much all of Western and Central Europe pledging allegiance to Napoleon. The only area you have that's, that's really not, well, of course, England, and England is in 1812 at least somewhat distracted with the situation in America, the War of, the, War of 1812 of the United States, and, of course, there's Iberia, uh, after Napoleon left in 1808, Iberia has really, you know, turned into a basket case for Napoleon. But in 1812, it's still not clear that the Peninsular Campaign, Spain and Portugal, is going to prevent Napoleon from being very, very successful elsewhere. Uh, sure, it, Napoleon will be in a two-front war. Sure, an awful lot of Napoleon's uh, soldiers are tied down in, in Spain. Uh, as we'll see in a few moments, Napoleon has the ability to field the largest army in history up to that point. So it's not at all clear that the Iberian campaign is, is going to be a problem. Uh, so that's, that's the situation going into 1812. Uh, and Tsar and, and Alexander uh, understands that and begins to prepare for it. Wow. I think that is the longest monologue I have. Well, yet I apologize. Heard you. No, don't. It's I'm 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 impressed. <laughs> that was amazing. You didn't stop for a breath. Well I well, I actually twice stopped for a drink of my <laughs> medication, but uh, uh I didn't notice but... it was I thought you must have had it on an <laughs> IV drip or something tonight. <laughs> I uh well, and, and again, I, I apologize no, if, no. if I ramble too long. But... Not at all. No need, sir. This is your job. I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed at your ability to talk about this stuff so lucidly. Um, well, you know, like, like I say, I, I really, you know, years ago when I started out, I, I told myself, you know, there's, there's, you know, when I started out in, in, in my interest in Napoleon and, and getting involved in studying Napoleon, maybe writing about Napoleon and so I was determined. It had nothing to do with Russia. I didn't want to have a thing to do with the Russian campaign. The Russian campaign, as, as we all know, uh, didn't work out real well for the emperor. Uh, and 
you know, it, it didn't seem like it would be all that interesting to me. He goes there and, and freezes to death and comes home. But over time, I, I became more and more interested in it. And even though it, it clearly is not one of the high points of Napoleon's career, it is one of those interesting campaigns to study. It's, it's absolutely fascinating to analyze what happened and to think about what could have happened and to, to, to wonder, you know, why he didn't do this or why he didn't do that. I wrote a paper that I've presented a couple of venues actually on delays and indecision uh, in the Russian campaign, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll comment on that later on. Uh, I mean, it really, it really is a, uh, a very, very interesting campaign. It also, by the way, is, is a campaign that, number one, should have been won, and, 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 and number two, I, I think that Na Napoleon could, could lay some claim to legitimacy for the campaign. It's a campaign that, that did make some sense and was, to some extent, justified. I really think that if you're going to find a mistake that, it, that, that Napoleon made, it would be much more the Iberian thing. I have many times wondered why Napoleon didn't look at how big Spain and Portugal were and say, and, and how conservative, et cetera, et cetera, and say, you know, we're just going to fortify the, the, the border with the Pyrenees. Uh, we're going to control all the roads coming in and out of Spain. We'll do our best to have good relations with them and get ourselves, you know, involved in their politics a little bit or whatever. But we're not really going to go down there and try to control it. Uh, the, the, the border of the Pyrenees is a lot easier to control than the entire Iberian Peninsula. And, and so I've always thought that, that Napoleon really should have thought that one through a little more. But I really do believe that the way things worked out, that he probably didn't have much choice but to get involved in the Russian campaign. Now, I think he handled it badly in some areas. I think he he missed some pretty clear signals and did some things that he that I think he shouldn't have. But and again, I have the great advantage of of sitting here in, in a very very lovely library a couple of hundred years later, uh, and 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 very warm. Thank you very much. Uh, and not having to make these decisions at the time, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and, as the old cliche goes. And let's not get too far ahead of ourselves with, uh, with no. the mistakes. May I add a couple of things to back up your uh, I wish you would your story. Thank you, sir. Um, and let me say that uh, I, I've got quite a few books on this particular period of Napoleonic history because I've always found it to be extremely fascinating. Even though, as you've said, and as I'm sure everybody knows, because it's one of those stories that most people know about Napoleon. Most people know about. He went to Russia and it didn't end very well, and most people sure. have heard of Waterloo. But um, I'm I'm, one of the books in the last couple of years that I've really enjoyed, uh, as I know we've mentioned on the series before, is Moscow 1812, Napoleon's Fatal March by Adam Zamoyski. And, and Adam is actually descended from Polish nobility, even though he lives in America. And, yes. um, and I would love to get him on uh, after the series as one of our guests, but... Some of the stuff that he's got uh, in this book that just backs up some of the things that you said in the early part of this episode. 
says that every time a French army passed through one of these areas uh, in Europe, it disturbed a venerable clutter of archaic law and regulation, of privilege and prerogative, of rights and duties, releasing or awakening a variety of pent-up or dormant aspirations in the process. And every time France annexed a territory, she reorganised it along the lines of French Enlightenment thought. Rulers were dethroned, ecclesiastical institutions were abrogated, ghettos were opened, guild rights, caste privileges and other restrictions were abolished and serfs and slaves were freed. Although this was often accompanied by cynical exploitations of the territory and the French cause and shameless looting, the net effect was nevertheless a positive one in the liberal view. As a result, significant sections, and in some cases the majority, of the politically aware populations of such countries as Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Italy, Poland, and even Spain ranged themselves in the camp of France against those seeking to restore the ancient regime, even if they resented French rule and decried the depredations of French troops, nowhere more so than in Germany. He goes on to say that uh, in terms of the breakdown in relationships with Alexander, uh, we're talking about Alexander's... uh, some of the issues that Alexander has as a Tsar. He says that the Tsar of Russia was theoretically an all-powerful autocrat, but his relationship with his people was a complex and ambivalent one. There was a mystical, sacred foundation to his power since he was both his subject's religious hierarch and the representative of God on earth. This imposed strong bonds of obedience to him on them. But if Azar was felt to have betrayed his divinely ordained purpose, he became something worse than just a wicked Tsar. He became a devil who must be destroyed. At the secular level, his position was just as ambiguous. The very fact that all power was concentrated in him meant that he had no instruments with which to impose his will. He was thus in a curious way dependent on the goodwill of the nobility, which staffed the army and all the organs of state and therefore on public opinion. And public opinion was by now strongly against Alexander and his policies on virtually every point. He was seen by many as the author of Russia's shame, and he realized that the only way he could wipe away that shame was through war. The conquest of Finland had helped slightly, but it was not enough. He talks about the effects of the continental system as well, says... uh, Russia had very little industry and was dependent on imports for a huge variety of everyday items. These now had to be smuggled in via Sweden or through smaller ports on Russia's Baltic coastline. Her exports, timber, grain, hemp and so on, were bulky and difficult to smuggle. The Russian ruble fell in value against most European currencies by some 25%, which made foreign goods exorbitantly expensive. Between 1807 and 1811, the price of coffee more than doubled, sugar became more than three times as expensive, and a bottle of champagne went from $3.75 or 3 rubles 75, 3.75 to 12 rubles. Russian Sacre bleu! <laughs> Russian noblemen had to pay through the nose not only for champagne, but for everything they did not produce at home, and they could not find a market for the produce of their own estates. This cocktail of hurt pride and financial hardship produced ever more violent criticism of Alexander's policy and of his state secretary, Mikhail Mikhailovich Speransky, who was virtual prime minister. Um, And then to back up your story about his uh, designs on Poland, it talks about how after the Council of Erfur in 1808, when he was trying to redraft the terms of the, the original Treaty of Tilsit, 
It says Alexander produced a draft convention which would excise the words Poland and Poles from all official correspondence, ban the wearing of Polish decorations, and forbid the use of Polish emblems in the Grand Duchy. He wanted Napoleon to pledge that he would never allow the restoration of Poland and that he would take up arms against the Poles if they attempted it. Napoleon replied that while he could declare his opposition to such a revival, he would not and could not undertake to hinder it. The wording suggested by Russia was nonsensical and it bound France to pledges she would be in no position to carry out. He pointed out that he could have re-established Poland if he had wished to in 1807 and added the whole of Galicia to the Grand Duchy in 1809 but had not done so because he had no intention of doing so. Nevertheless, tens of thousands of Poles had fought loyally alongside the French for over a decade, inspired by their hopes of a free motherland and by France's sympathy to their cause. To sign the text suggested by Russia would compromise the honour and dignity of France, as Napoleon put it, to Champagny. So um, I know that sometimes we get accused of being uh, a little bit too pro-Napoleonic, but as you quite rightly said, I think, Napoleon's position in this instance is, is very much justified and and one of the things that always frustrates me when I talk to people who don't know a lot about Napoleon and this comes back to I believe the way Napoleonic history has been portray- portrayed by the the British mostly uh, over the last uh, 200 years and for heaven's sakes I wish people would stop saying that we're anti-British, because it's just not true. We're just trying to present the facts here. But the position of the, the perspective of Napoleon for the last 200 years when it comes to Russia is that he invaded Russia and he was, as you said, it was a land grab. He was ambitious. He wanted to control everything. When in fact, it is the complete reverse. We have Napoleon's letters to Alexander at this the period, most of which uh, were never replied to. And it was a complete breakdown of communication, but he he went to extreme lengths to prevent this coming to war. It was the last thing that he wanted, and uh, yet you know, as we can see, and particularly I like the way that Adam Zamoyski's book portrays this. Alexander really didn't have much choice. Alexander could almost feel the knife in the center of his back during these years, and and pretty much realized, I think, that if. He didn't break off relationships with France and Napoleon uh, that he was probably going to end up like his father did, six feet under. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really hard to say. I mean, you're, everything you say is exactly correct. And, and I want to add that, that I think, the, you know, if, if you want to read just a little, a little bit about, <clears throat> about Russia, I think what I've done in my books and, and, and what other authors do in their books, you know, a chapter or two, you know, you, you, you'll get a really good feel for things. And, of course, the next two or three podcasts, hopefully, are going to give you a good feel for things. But if you really want to get into uh, the 1812 campaign, there's no better book than Adam Zamoski's book. It's, it, it's just a wonderful book. Uh, I've certainly uh, used parts of it uh, from time to time. Uh, I, I consider it to be overall the, the, the best look at this campaign you're going to find. It's it's three inches thick, so you know it's a it's 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 a big read without without any question. Uh, but it's well worthwhile. It's 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 a fine book. Uh, did either one have any choice? Well, it's a little hard to say. I think Alexander had a little bit more choice uh, uh, than than you suggest, but but he did feel a lot of pressure. 
in in my Napoleon for Dummies book, I think I I say that, you know, this this always kind of reminds me of the lead up to World War One. Nobody wanted it. The, the, the Germans didn't want World War I. The Austrian-Hungarian uh, Empire didn't want it. Maybe a few of the Serbs wanted it, but they wanted it regionally. Uh, France and France, so forth, they didn't want it. No one really wanted World War I. But a series of events took place, including some that had been clearly warned against, uh, that led inexorably to the war. And then when the war suddenly seemed inevitable, everybody figured it would be over by Christmas. And, and the, the campaign of 1812 was the same thing. Everybody thought it would be a short campaign. Quite frankly, most everybody, including probably most Russians, thought that Napoleon would win. That Napoleon would go in, kick some butt, and that would be the end of it. Uh, I'm not sure Alexander thought that, and maybe some of Alexander's uh, military leaders didn't think that, and, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but but uh, there, there was a, a real sense that, that it, it was really tough to be Napoleon. Remember, Spain hadn't shown Napoleon's weakness that much yet. But to the careful analyst, yes, you could see that something was going dreadfully wrong in, in, in Spain. But for the average people out there, no, it still, it, it still hadn't got there yet. And there was no particular reason to believe that Russia was going to have any great success against Napoleon. But both sides <clears throat> understood that they probably were going to have some kind of a conflict. And, and both sides took action. Uh, for those of the people who say that, oh, poor poor Russia, you know, they didn't know this was coming and the mean old Napoleon invaded them. Well, not exactly. Uh, for one thing, our old buddy, uh, Bernadotte, uh, now the Swedish crown prince, formal for marshal of the empire, uh, Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, uh, who had married uh, Desiree Claret, uh, you may recall Napoleon's first girlfriend, uh, was now in a position to offer support to 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 Alexander, uh, and he does. In April of 1812, uh, Sweden and Russia uh, sign a a treaty, the the Convention of Saint Petersburg, uh, which basically says, "Listen, I'm I I won't take Napoleon's side." Uh, Napoleon had, had not been willing to help Bernadotte and Sweden uh, conquer Norway. Uh, when I go to, I've been to Norway just once, but I went there with my wife, who is Norwegian by heritage, and and uh, there's all these these monuments, not to Napoleon so much because Napoleon was never in Norway, to the struggle for liberation against Sweden. Well, of course, that's what led to Bernadotte uh, taking sides with Alexander. You mentioned that that uh, uh, Alexander thought that he needed a military victory uh, to to gain support on the home front, uh, something which Napoleon also constantly had to be concerned about, especially earlier in his career. Uh, well, Alexander had been fighting Turkey for six years, and 
you know, I, I, I don't know that, that uh, uh, a whole lot was going on there, but, but he was able to end that war and sign a peace treaty uh, by May. I think and it was he also more ne- war with Napoleon. I think it was more war, war with France and war with Napoleon that uh, Zamoyski was suggesting Alexander needed his. Uh, yeah. Oh sure, sure, but but any any leader loves to have a military victory, no matter who it's against, uh, or a peace treaty that that ends a war uh, is 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 also very popular, assuming that you don't get sort of screwed in the process. Of the peace treaty, that was the that was the problem with Tilson. An awful lot of Russians, particularly the nobility, the, the the elite classes, thought that Russia had been treated poorly, and and they 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 came out, you know, less well off than France. But after all, Napoleon had won uh, the war, so what a surprise that that, that the France would come out a little bit ahead. Uh, at any rate, uh, and the British, who you might think would stay out of this one, just once. Britain, leave France alone. You're fighting the Americans for crying out loud. You've got enough economic problems. But no, uh, they sign a treaty, a trade treaty with England, uh, and 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 uh, uh, it's 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 very clear that, that Great Britain is going to side out of there as well. Just uh, on that though, and, and I'm jumping sure. in before uh, we get accused of more uh, British bashing. The the economic interests of Britain in overturning the continental system and being able to sign trade agreements with at least one of the major potential trading partners in Europe is obviously very strong. It was in their interests to uh, economic interests to to get that signed, wouldn't it? Have been? Oh, absolutely. Don't don't ever get me wrong. Great Britain depends on trade depends on being able to sell its goods and as an island nation to import goods and, and, and raw materials that it needs. No question about it. But underlying all of these problems and, and, and defeating that, in my view, as an argument, well, that's why you know, Great Britain had to do this, had to do that. If Great Britain wants to have wonderful trade relations with Europe and sign a peace treaty with France. Keep the peace treaty. Don't break it like they did the Treaty of Amiens. Sign trade agreements with France, which is the biggest, richest, most powerful country in Europe. And Great Britain will prosper beyond imagination. If there had been peace on the continent, if Great Britain had said, we don't care about Napoleon. We don't care about all those reforms. Many of those reforms actually look a little bit like what we like to do here in Great Britain. Let's have peace. Let's trade with each other. Can't we all just get along? You know, that, that would solve any economic problems that Great Britain has. The reason they have to go and do this treaty with that com- country, that treaty with another, and so on, is because... They refuse to make a lasting peace with Napoleonic France. And in my book, there's no justification for that. Obviously, there are people who will disagree with me, and certainly the government of Great Britain disagrees with me, the government then, uh, although it has to be said that there were, throughout this period, strong 
political groups in, in Great Britain who were very pro-France, very pro-Bonaparte, very pro-peace, uh, who objected to Great Britain's constant uh, antagonism toward, toward the French. Uh, so, so, you know, I say to my, my British friends and supporters of, of British policy, you want, you want success, you want, you know, to, to have a, 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 a really good economic uh, uh, growth uh, and, and so on, then make peace with France. But they didn't. Uh, they did, however, sign trade agreements uh, with uh, Alexander, who, by the way, was also working on uh, building up his army. Uh, he had learned, as was happening across Europe with Napoleon's enemies, Napoleon won to a large extent because he was able to field a better army, a better organized army, better supplied army, etc. cetera, uh, with the core system. I, I don't recall. I think we've talked about that already. But, you know, Alexander and, and some of the others were, were beginning to, to catch on. And uh, Alexander... Alexander's army and its leadership cadre uh, were better in 1812 than they had been in 1805, certainly at Austerlitz, and indeed even in 1807 uh, at Eylau and uh, Friedland. Uh, Napoleon also understood that things were going to, 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 to come to a head. Uh, he had, as I've already stated, Davu sitting in the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. He had other armies in Germany. Uh, he had tried again uh, to sign a peace treaty and an economic trade agreement with, uh, with Great Britain, uh, and that, uh, that didn't work. However, he did sign uh, treaties with Austria <clears throat> and Prussia, which covered his eastern and northern uh, flanks, gave his, his military, uh, my added, added 50,000 troops or more to his, to his military might. Uh, uh, he had a quarter of a million troops or so uh, sitting in uh, Iberia, uh, but he still had, you know, pretty close to 600,000 men when he marched into Russia. I've seen any, any numbers anywhere from 500,000 to 600,000. And so, you know, split the difference uh, over, somewhere over half a million men. And Which as far I as I know... it's the largest army ever assembled? Well, that's what I was just about to say. Sorry. As far as I know, this is by far the biggest army in history up, up to that point. Mm. Can I read um, a letter... Uh, that Napoleon wrote to Alexander on sure. July 1st, 1812. Why, well, thank you. <laughs> Just to, <laughs> well, to, you asked a question. <laughs> to to, to uh, drive home again this point that Napoleon, I believe, uh, and, and this is possibly arguable, but I believe he w was really n trying to avoid war as an outcome here. He, sure. he, he writes this letter to... Alexander says, I have received your majesty's letter. The war which set our states at issue was brought to an end by the Treaty of Tilsit. 
Then he goes on to talk about what they negotiated, Tilsit then, the convention of a fur. Um, Apparently, uh, about the middle of 1810, Your Majesty wished for fresh modifications in the Treaty of Tilsit. There were two ways of arriving at this result, negotiation or war. Negotiation had succeeded at Erfur. Why did Your Majesty this time adopt a different method? You armed on a large scale, you refused to negotiate, and you seemed disinclined to press for modifications of the Treaty of Tilsit unless surrounded by your armies. The relations established between our two powers after so many incidents and so much bloodshed were broken off, and war became imminent. I also armed, but six months after Your Majesty had done so. I have not raised a single battalion or drawn one million out of my treasury for war expenses without giving notice of the fact to Your Majesty and Your Majesty's ambassadors. I have missed no opportunity of explaining my intentions. Your Majesty issued to all Europe a kind of manifesto that the powers generally do not make unless they are about to fight and have nothing more to expect from negotiation. I made no reply. Your Majesty was the first to mobilise your armies and to threaten my frontiers. Your Majesty was the first to start for the front. Your Majesty, after 18 months' constant refusal to explain your intentions, finally forwarded through your minister a demand for the evacuation of Prussia as a previous condition of such an explanation. A few days later, this minister repeated your demand three times and asked for his passports. From that moment, Your Majesty and I were at war. I realised then that the lot was cast and that this affair, like so many others, had been decided by that invisible providence whose rights and overruling power I never deny. This, sire, is an account of my conduct. Doubtless your majesty will have much to say, but you should remind yourself that for 18 months you refused to give any explanation for your proceedings, that you subsequently refused to assent to any agreement unless I first evacuated territory belonging to my allies, by which means you hoped to deprive Prussia of the independence you were apparently guaranteeing, whilst at the same time you reminded me of the Cordine Forks. I deplored the ill will of those who could give Your Majesty such advice. Never before, under any circumstances, had Russia been allowed to use such language to France. It is the sort of language the Empress Catherine might have used to the last kings of Poland. We are at war then. God himself cannot undo what has been done. But my ears will ever be open to negotiation for peace. And as soon as Your Majesty is willing to free yourself from men who are enemies of your family, your honour and your empire, you will find in me the same feelings of sincere friendship as before. The day will come when Your Majesty will admit that if you had not changed your policy at the end of 1810 and if you had loyally negotiated for modifications in the Treaty of Tilsit, a course which would have involved no change, your reign would have been one of the most famous in Russian history. And he goes on and on and on. If Your Majesty wishes to end hostilities, you will find me ready to do so. If Your Majesty is determined to carry on and would like to draw up an agreement on liberal lines, such as that men in hospital shall not be regarded as prisoners, then neither side need evacuate in a hurry, always a cause for heavy losses, or such as a fortnightly exchange of prisoners rank for rank, according to a rotor of exchange or any other stipulations that the rules of war commonly allow between civilised nations, then Your Majesty will find me ready for anything. So to me, it's very clear that Napoleon was going to extreme lengths to get Alexander to see reason. And that, as you say, and and this is borne out as we move further and further, probably I suspect in our next episodes, Every step of this battle, Napoleon would say to his marshals and and his people around him, look, any moment now they're going to sign a peace treaty. There's no way they're going to let this go on much longer. 
uh, and but, yet he but, was uh, so very wrong. <laughs> well, they were, you're exactly right, of course, <clears throat> as you as you always are. Uh, there's no way that Napoleon could possibly want this war. First of all, this is not 1800 where he he really needs a victory to to continue to impress people. He's had plenty of victories. Thank you very much. Uh, the people of France are tired of war. They don't want any more war. Plus, they've got a damn war going on in Spain. It leads to the other point. Even Napoleon's biggest detractors will say that he was one of the, the greatest military geniuses of, of, of all time, a, a superb military commander, a superb tactician and strategist. Okay, if he's that, then surely he would have known that no one in their right mind deliberately goes into a two-front war. I don't care how many soldiers you have, unless it's some little skirmish against a nothing power, and nobody is accusing Russia of, of, of being a nothing power. They have huge territory and a, and a massive army. Uh, it, it just can't be good. Even granted, <clears throat> as I said a while ago, that the people thought it would probably be a short campaign, no one in their right mind is going to deliberately go into a two-front war and, and, and in the process bring to a crashing halt all that had been done to try to, to secure the peace, to secure an alliance with this massive country. Sure, Napoleon thinks he's going to go in there, win a quick victory, uh, and, and, and put things back in order again. Uh, but Napoleon also has to recognize that, that this, this campaign is not something that's going to be good unless it just goes extraordinarily well. Sure, if he goes in there and six weeks after the campaign starts, he destroys the Russian army and, and there are scenes of, of Alexander down on his knees begging for forgiveness, wonderful. But there's no reason to believe that the second half of that scenario, at least, uh, is going to happen. And, and, and later on, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, about why. Uh, incidentally, I, I wanted to... Uh, to, to make a sort of a side comment here, you are usually the one I, I, I leave to coming up with the quotes, but I've got one here from Baron uh, von Odelben, who was a Saxon a general uh, baron attached to Napoleon's staff uh, in 1813. Uh, but, but he writes in his memoirs, which are really very fun to read and pretty rare, uh, they were, they were published in, in English in, in 1813. Uh, Many of our contemporaries treat the project of invading the East Indies as altogether incredible and ridiculous. But from the information I received at the French headquarters, I am confident such an intention was real. The provinces of the Russian Empire, so little favored by nature, could not surely tempt the avidity of Napoleon. Neither the conquest then of these provinces, nor the desire of vanquishing the Russian army, determined the victorious chief to undertake this campaign. No, he considered the road to Moscow 
as but the third part of his march to India. Now there's an interesting thought that Napoleon is using this invasion of Russia uh, as, as simply a way to keep on marching uh, on down and, and eventually uh, end up in, uh, in India. I really don't buy that, but I find it fascinating that someone at the level of Baron von Odelben uh, is, is writing that, that this may have been one of the, the things that, that Napoleon had in mind. Uh, I think Napoleon was was much much more uh, uh, limited in, in in his goals. At any rate, Napoleon has this huge army, upwards of five hundred, six hundred thousand men, uh, <clears throat> which no one would want to get in front of. Okay, and and of course it's commanded by himself in person. Uh, the new Alexander, the new Caesar, the, the, the new whoever, uh, one of the great military commanders of, prob- of, of, all, of all history. There are problems, however. First of all, there's like 20 different countries represented in this army, which means there's somewhere in the vicinity of 20 different languages. Okay. Uh, now, the elite officer corps all speaks French. So that's not a problem. But the men themselves speak their common languages. I have uh, a report from uh, a, a Russian uh, general uh, to uh, uh, the Tsar in my collection, and it's written in French. Uh, that was the court language. You know? It's just like today, English is the, the, the main language of, of, of the elite of the world anyway. Well, it was French in those days. So the officer corps could communicate pretty well, uh, but the men couldn't. And, of course, the men, you know, all these armies have their own uniforms. And so in the heat of battle, you wouldn't necessarily be quite sure who you were, who you were uh, coming up to. Uh, and, of course, obviously the French soldiers were more dedicated than, say, the Prussian or the Austrian uh, soldiers. Uh, the Austrians... Uh, Prince Schwarzenberg, for, for example, and some of the other uh, Austrians were sort of okay uh, generals, but they weren't really at the level of, say, uh, a Davu or a Masena or, or even a Ney or a Murat. Uh, and, of course, they had their problems. Uh, and their motivation was, 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 was questionable. Uh, now, he's got Davu with him. Davu was spectacular. He's got Murat, who on his own level is also spectacular. He's got Ney, who, who does well, and, 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 and toward the end of the campaign, of course, does extremely well. And Napoleon has been very, very careful to make sure that there are adequate supplies already stationed in forward bases. Okay? And, and so up in Warsaw, uh, and, and, and in Germany and elsewhere, he's, he's got huge uh, depots of supplies. One of the things they don't have a lot of, though, is horses. It may sound strange and maybe even cruel, but it's a lot easier to come up with, with men for an army than it is to come up with horses. 
there's a lot more men out there who can be conscripted into the service than there are horses. Uh, this is going to be a bad problem after 1812 because they're going to lose incredible numbers of horses and they start off with fewer horses uh, than they than they could. Nevertheless, uh, Napoleon, you know, marches in and and really believes that that he's going to to be very uh, but he didn't listen to some of the things that that he really should have listened to, and and we'll get into the actual invasion I think next time we're 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 up to around an hour now and, and we're coming up to a good place to stop. But another quote: This time in, in June of 1811, Tsar Alexander is talking to. Uh, uh, Armand de Caloncourt, uh, who is at that point Napoleon's um, ambassador to, to, to Russia and, and whose uh, memoirs uh, with Napoleon in Russia are also extraordinarily important if you want to understand this campaign. And, and Caloncourt is a good friend and loyalist to Napoleon. But Tsar Alexander tells the, 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 the ambassador, Caloncourt, says, your Frenchman is brave, but long privations and a bad climate wear him down and discourage him. Our climate, our winter, will fight on our side. And boy, is that true. I think almost everybody out there listening now already knows in advance sort of the end of this story. We all know about what I call the strategic withdrawal from Russia. Uh, but nevertheless, Napoleon didn't really think about that possibility. Of course, Napoleon is not expecting an extended campaign. He doesn't plan to go to Moscow. He doesn't plan to go to St. Petersburg, of course, where the Tsar is. Uh, he really expected that he was going to, to move forward force a quick battle uh, with the Russia uh, and win. He couldn't imagine that Russia would tolerate a massive foreign army wandering across its countryside. Surely they would have to stand and fight. Surely they would have to defend the honor of Mother Russia by standing up to this massive army getting defeated and then seeking peace. Of course, we all know <clears throat> that Alexander instead keeps his forces retreating deeper and deeper and deeper. We don't really know for sure if this was what they had planned or not, but that's what's going to happen. Uh, and that's what's going to ultimately lead to uh, the disaster that will be uh, the campaign in Russia. And on June 24, 1812, almost 600,000 soldiers march across some bridges on the Neiman River, June 24, 1812, 
if you were on the other side, you would feel just awed at the sight of an army like that, the bands playing marshals, generals, field marshals, and various flashy uniforms on beautiful horses, you know, rank and file after rank and file after rank and file of soldiers, the Imperial Guard, Napoleon, you know, in the rear. Uh, and what are they facing? They're facing not one, not two, but three armies. The, the Western Army, the first Western Army commanded by Barclay de Tolly with around 127,000 men. The second Western Army commanded by General Peter Bagration, somewhere around 50,000 men. And the third Western Army commanded by General Alexander Tormazov, uh, not even really put together yet, but somewhere around 40,000 men. So that's, 90, that's a little over 200,000 soldiers up against well over half a million. So we will leave you, dear listeners, with a three-to-one advantage of the French over the Russians as Napoleon and the Grand Armée march across the Neiman River into what they believe will be cakewalk against a vastly outnumbered and, much to Napoleon's delight, split army. Napoleon has made his reputation with divide and conquer, defeat an enemy that may even have more soldiers than you by defeating them piecemeal. Well, here the entire Russian army doesn't have but a third as many soldiers as Napoleon has, and they are split up so Napoleon at least hopefully can take them on one at a time. Imagine 600,000 overwhelming an army of, say, 50,000. It wouldn't even be a skirmish. De Tolly's army of 127, not much more than a skirmish if they were to stand and fight. And that, I think, is where we will leave you until next time, unless you have more that you'd like to add. I, uh, I only want to finish with quoting from your wonderful book, Imperial Glory, the Bulletins of Napoleon's Grand Armée, Oh, I love it. 22nd of June, 1812. Soldiers, the Second War of Poland has commenced. The first was brought to a close at Friedland and Tilsit. At Tilsit, Russia swore eternal alliance with France and war with England. She now violates her oaths. She refuses to give any explanation of her strange conduct until the eagles of France shall have recrossed the Rhine, leaving our allies at her mercy. Russia is swept away by her fate. Her destinies must be accomplished. Does she believe us degenerate? Are we no longer the soldiers of Austerlitz? She places us between dishonor and war. The choice cannot be in doubt. Let us then march forward. Let us cross the Neman. Let us carry the war into her territory. The second war of Poland will be as glorious to the French arms as the first. But the peace that we shall conclude will carry its own guarantee and will put an end to that proud and haughty influence which Russia has for 50 years exercised in the affairs of Europe.